Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Episode 28 of The Pick List, Julia, uh, the end of season two, which is hugely exciting. And for our audio listeners, uh, we're both wearing Santa hats. Unfortunately, um, yours is better fitting than mine. Mine's <laughs> a, a little on the snug side, I'm not going to lie. Uh, how's your week been? Hello, Laura. And yes, definitely every reason to check out the uh, the video version of the podcast this week if you want to see both of us wearing Santa hats. Good week. Uh, very exciting news this week. Uh, my weekly newsletter, The Trim, was included in a uh, roundup of the best newsletters to follow by Sifted, uh, which is a publication that we featured a few times um, on the podcast as well. It's a publication that's backed by the FT um, and a publication I really respect. So I was super excited to see The Trim featured on there. Great end to the year. Oh, what have you been up to? Huge congratulations on that. And we don't talk about the trim enough because the trim is amazing. So if anyone listening isn't subscribed to the trim, make sure you subscribe and there'll be a link in the in the show notes, no, no doubt, because it's a, a brilliant read every week. Um, my week's been good as well. Uh, last week, I was nominated by MBS and IGD as a role model in consumer goods in the grocery index. So um, I was really delighted to be... Um, selected and nominated out of a group of contemporaries to be a role model for the sector. So yeah, that's great. And it's had um, some good PR for me this week. And it's made me do the brave step of setting up my own website as well. Uh, so lavenpark.co.uk. Um, it's just a holding page, but explains what I do consultancy side is now up and running. So uh, yeah, that, that's really good. And I'm talking about that more now rather than just talking about some of the projects I work on too which is great. I'm super excited about that and we will include a link to your website as well yeah and I, I thought the profile they wrote about you in um, in the MBS report and, and why you're a role model and the kind of different experience and perspective that you bring I thought it was brilliant so it's definitely worth a read and you're in very good company in that report as well some uh, really high profile senior leaders so it was very exciting to see you included in that thank you so much yeah keep flicking to page 118 uh, <laughs> to find me uh with the uh, the last show of the year is a, another a beauty isn't it and we've got a great guest with us we have indeed. We're joined by John Giles. John is Divisional Director at Proma and he does a lot of travelling. Well, he did a lot of travelling before COVID, but he's someone who has a lot of experience, particularly in dairy and in the fresh produce industry, and really takes that global perspective on what is happening. So I was really grateful to John for bringing some interesting reads from around the world that wouldn't necessarily have been on my radar. Should we start the show? John, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Good evening, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here. And of course, with you, Laura, as well. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are and how you're connected to food and grocery? 
Uh, yeah, thanks, Julia. So my name is John Giles. I'm a divisional director at a company called Promar International. We're an agri-food consultancy company. We're part of a much bigger agri-business tech services company called Genus, who shares a tr traded on the stock exchange. I've, I've worked with Promar for a long time now, and uh, I've been very fortunate. They've sent me all around the world, all around the UK, uh, twice in most cases, to be honest. And so in that time, I've worked on a whole range of projects covering the whole agricultural supply chain, but particularly in areas such as dairy and horticulture. Fantastic. And you've brought some very interesting and highly topical articles for us to discuss. Why don't you tell us about your first pick for us? Yeah, the first, the first article, it actually was quite interesting at the weekend. I was looking through uh, various you know, magazines and newspapers, you know, the, the they're all full of things about agriculture and food at the moment uh, for all sorts of reasons. But the one that really caught my eye, and I think we probably can't uh, avoid talking about it, is Brexit. Uh, here we are with uh, a very short period of time to go now to we either have a deal or no deal. And the headline in the Sunday Telegraph on the, on the front page, and not on the business pages or tucked away on page eight or nine, on the front page was um, along the lines of, you know, government prepared to allocate billions, uh, millions of pounds to help farmers in the case of a, a, a no-deal situation arising. And they particularly talked about uh, meat exports to Europe and particularly lamb. Uh, they talked about other sectors of the economy as well, but they picked out agriculture as an area that would need particular help and, and sort of allocating yeah, big sums of money to, to try and facilitate um, uh, a, a transition into a new marketing situation. And as you say, it is impossible to uh, have a conversation about anything at the moment, but particularly about food and drink and not reference Brexit. And it's just such a crazy time. Isn't it? As you say, we're so close to that deadline. And at the time of recording, I mean, there are rumours of um, of a deal potentially having been struck, but we, we still don't know. And it's just that uncertainty. And going into 2021 um, with those questions still unresolved, it's just so, so challenging. It, it, look, it's been very challenging, hasn't it? We've had three and a half years to sort this out. And we, you know, I think we always knew there was going to be some brinkmanship involved on both sides, probably. But we seem to have, we are really going down to the wire on this. And it must be very difficult for businesses to to try and plan ahead. Um, I, I think, to be fair, you know, rumour and counter rumour, Julia, who knows what's really going on? There may be something on the news later on this evening. You never know. But, um, uh, you know, even if we have a deal, I think the, the, the general thinking is that there will be a certain level of disruption for UK exports and, and in cases, you know, UK imports of agricultural and food products as well, because of the uncertainty and the time that people have had to prepare or not prepare that. So even if we get a deal, there will be, in my view, uh, uh, at least in the short term, uh, maybe a good deal of disruption. If we don't get a deal, you know, it could be you know, brutal for the next three to six months. And again, you know, I think we would we would find ways of uh, dealing with or, or operating with our European partners, but a no deal situation, I think everybody thinks that is going to make life extremely difficult and challenging. Do you think uh, the UK consumer will just get used to it if there is friction in food supplies and there isn't your favourite vegetable or fruit or meat or whatever it may be on the shelf do you think we'll we'll just suck that up and think that's fine you know there's been a, a lot of chat over the press over the last week or so about the pressure on the supply base into retailers to absorb any tariffs if tariffs come the you know eventually there's going to be a change for the consumer good bad or indifferent and we've been in this luxurious position for so long haven't we whatever we've wanted it's been there on the shelf and it's been in comparative terms globally cheap 
Do you think this is going to be a massive step change regardless of a deal or no deal for UK consumers and maybe a move to more seasonal eating? I know that's a bit of a traditional view, but because we've been used to having whatever we want, but will we be focusing more on what what's in trend in UK production more? Yeah, I think we could do, Laura. I mean, it's great fun to pontificate about what people will and won't do, won't they? And the reality is we're about to find out, basically. I think I think British consumers are fairly stoic, um, and uh, you know if we can't get our favourite strawberries from Spain, that you know it may not be the end of the world. Basically, I think in some cases there will be over a period of time a, a, an opportunity for UK producers to fill some of those gaps if if importing products becomes more difficult or more expensive. I, I'm also a great believer in that uh, the sophistication of our supply chains we've seen in COVID. Um, you know, at the start of COVID, you could go into a supermarket and find that the shelves were bare. Now, that might have been in case, in some cases, because of supply chain um, sort of disruption, but also maybe sort of some level of panic buying or what have you. But about a month later, you could get what you wanted to, really. And I'm a great, I think our supply chains, driven by the demands of our retailers, they're very, very good. And they will find ways of getting the food that we want here. Um, and it might be a bit more difficult than in the past, and it might take a little bit of time to settle down. Of course, some of the products that we import, we can't grow here anyway. So, you know, products that come from the Southern Hemisphere, we will still import grapes from Chile. Uh, we will still import maybe kiwi fruit from New Zealand and, uh, and what have you, uh, because we can't, you know, that, that won't change. And some of these countries have already, I know in, in, in Latin America, most of the countries there have largely negotiated access to the UK market on the same terms as they had at the moment. So for them, it may not make too much difference. It's much more the, the interrelationship between ourselves and people on the continent of Europe. And of course, uh, one of the other things that appeared in the paper, um, on not on the front page, but I think page five or six, was a big article about the impact in Ireland. And um, you know, we're concerned about uh, the impact of Brexit in the UK, but I think in Ireland they're as concerned, if not, nor maybe even more concerned, uh, if they find that accessing the UK market, which is so important for them, is is fundamentally different and difficult in the future. Yeah, you're right. And I was chatting to some trade contacts today and it was interesting that they were saying, particularly maybe for meat products, there's a concern in mainland Europe that if, for argument's sake, Irish beef can't come to the UK and then that supplies goes into mainland Europe and that disrupts prices over there, then the Europeans aren't going to want that either. So yeah, how that how that border looks... Yeah, it's going to be a critical part of you know what happens over the next few days, isn't it? But we know that that the Irish food industry is well organised and it's pretty, it's a smart industry basically. I think they yes. but they they've been saying for some time that we're over dependent on the UK. We need to look at new markets, maybe in the Middle East, maybe in the Gulf, uh, maybe in parts of Africa, Southeast Asia, but also uh, for from their for their point of view, you know, the UK not being able to supply. the uh, continental European markets in the way we can at the moment with with no friction whatsoever and ready market access that does present an opportunity for them and yeah they won't they won't have missed that point they'll be thinking about what you know can we replace the UK in uh, in continental Europe yeah Julia what's your first pick this week my first pick this week is from the Wall Street Journal and it's an article titled meal kits face competition from the microwave this article caught my eye because in many ways it continues the conversation we had with Brian Roberts last week about recipe boxes, direct-to-consumer selling, and what's going to happen to those business models once more shoppers return to stores. 
And I thought Brian raised quite a few interesting questions over the long-term potential of some of these models and the growth um, that we've seen around these models and whether that's sustainable going into 2021. And I'd say this article asks some similar questions and raises similar concerns. Once we have an effective vaccination program and life returns to more normal patterns, the expectation, the article argues, is that fewer people will be cooking from scratch and that convenience will become much more important again. And that is going to present some challenges to some of these D2C, in particular those recipe box models. Now, you might say a recipe box with perfectly portioned ingredients, that's already pretty convenient. Um, But the author of this article believes there will be growing pressure on these recipe box operators to offer even more convenient options. And one such option is fresh ready meals. So again, to be delivered to your home, still that DTC model, still the convenience of home delivery, but no scratch cooking involved. Um, And a fresher, healthier potentially more personalised, more interesting selection of meals than you might be able to buy from your local supermarket. And what the article points out is that some companies are already moves in that direction. Uh, Last week, we talked about Kraft Heinz offering fresh ready meals on the continent. Um, The article points out that Nestle recently bought a US company called Freshly, and HelloFresh acquired US ready meals provider Factor 75 this year. And again, this was seen as a sign that these recipe box providers are very much alive to the challenge and that they're looking to broaden their portfolio to be able to capture consumers who potentially are going to be moving away from scratch cooking over the coming 12 months. Now, this is the US, of course. Um, Those dynamics aren't necessarily going to be the same in other countries. And one point that I thought was quite interesting in this piece is they do point out that the US fresh ready meals in supermarkets aren't particularly compelling or sophisticated at the moment, and that that has created a gap in the market for some of those D2C providers. And thinking about the UK, I'm not sure that's the case in the UK. I mean, chilled ready meals, pre-COVID certainly, they have always been a huge strategic focus for retailers. So we're perhaps not seeing quite that same gap. But uh, that's not to say that there couldn't be opportunities for something similar over here as well, especially in offering meals that perhaps hit those trends around health, freshness and personalization a little bit more than what you would expect to get from standard chilled ready meals in a supermarket. And John, I was really interested to get your take on this, particularly as you're someone who who knows the fresh produce industry really well. With that trend around freshness and fresh ingredients and health, can you see some of the fresh produce suppliers potentially sniffing around an opportunity here and looking to maybe start experimenting with some D2C models that speak to that trend? Yeah, look, I think they'll be more than sniffing around it, uh, Julia. I think they'll be looking at it very closely. And I think it's quite interesting you know how sometimes the US looks at what happens in the UK and sometimes the UK look look at what's happening in 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 North America and sort of learn learn from each other I thought what was really interesting in this article was that the you know, hello fresh are, are going absolutely crazy at the moment aren't they there I was just noted that their shares are up 200% this year their sales are up 100% but they think it's going to slow down in 2021 a little bit basically 
um, but they, you know, they're talking about sort of doubling revenue and, and this, this sort of thing. So they're, they're doing very well. They seem to have sort of perfected the model, although I've got a caveat to that. Then you've got other people um, who are in the same sort of space are not doing anywhere near as well. So it's, you know, the, it's it's already quite a crowded market, I think, for, for, for this type of um, uh, providing food to consumers. I think, I think freshness and healthness will be important drivers. I think personalization is a real thing that you can, we don't want to buy the same as everybody else these days, really. We've got sort of quite picky about what we buy. If we want to do that, we can almost go to a supermarket, but when you're ordering you know, your you know, your personal meal to be delivered to your home, I think this is, um, yeah, it's a sign of a sort of an advanced consumer, modern consumer society, isn't it really? One of the things I also noticed in the papers this week, Julia, and it would have been one of my other stories, but I think I knew you were gonna pick this one, but there was quite an interesting analysis of, a number of these sort of home delivery companies saying they're all seeing incredible growth they're seeing sort of significant investment sometimes from their own resources but sometimes from third parties everyone thinks it's a good idea no one seems to be making any money at it at the moment really or not any proper money at it and so i think you know it, it reminds me a little bit of the dot-com bubble um, i'm old enough to remember that where everybody sort of launched into this new sort of way of doing business and and actually you know just being a dot-com company wasn't good enough not being a home delivery company whatever you're delivering to home won't be good enough it will be the ones who really perfect the technology behind it and uh you know delivering to the last mile as i said that seems to be a big challenge so it's a great idea we all love it and we've all made huge use of it during covid but actually making money from it still seems to be quite challenging I think it's a great point, John. And one of the things that you said there really struck a chord with me um, is that personalization piece. And this is what they're playing to the, these meal kit providers with such a range of 80 plus selections and be able to swap out for different proteins or different allergens and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and I guess from what I'm picking up from their market, they're saying that they're only 1% of evening meals uh, produced using a meal kit and they're going to try and push it to 5%. Very much see. Um, retail as a competitor not hospitality but I think we probably touched on it with Brian last week regardless if it's a meal kit or a ready meal it was reliant on if somebody's in the house to have the uh, item delivered and if in post-covid times we're in the office and you're not at home then to your point John about making a margin that is going to be even harder if that courier has to come back the following day or if that product then is missing shelf life because you know, it's been in a, a DPD depot for, for two days. And, and, and I think that's where a lot of the complaints come from, from these meal kits when you get five meals and you've got no choice in terms of what day you're going to have those meals because you've only got X amount of shelf life on a poultry product, for example. So you're going to have to have chicken fajitas tonight when you actually wanted something else that's in that box. Well, there, I have to say, I mean, I'm, I'm a recipe box customer. I certainly have been in the past. That is not my experience. I think they have, of course, the business model is, is challenging. And there are plenty of examples of, of companies that haven't managed to turn it in, into a, a successful or profitable uh, business model. But I think there are some uh, operators, a growing number of operators that are figuring out how to do that. But Nora, to your point about, you know, people not being there to, to, to take receipt um, of the boxes, that they, they already have ways to deal with that. I mean, they, um, you know, these are all insulated boxes. They have cooling options in there. When I used to get a recipe box when I was working full time at the grocer, um, you could specify exactly where the courier would leave your box. 
it would make, you know, they'd make sure that it was still chilled and it was packaged properly uh, so that you would still get your fresh ingredients um, when you came home in the evening. So from personal experience, I think that is less of a problem um, than um, th- than it might seem. I, I think these models can still work even if people have returned home. I think the challenge around whether we will have the bandwidth and the patience to do scratch cooking, I think that is m- a much bigger challenge to these operators than whether or not someone is is at home, based on my personal experience. Laura, what's your first pick for us? My first pick this week's from the BBC and it's Asda beefs up anti-COVID security Christmas and this is the news that uh, Asda are heavily investing in more staff uh, in their stores to prevent overcrowding in their their, uh, 421 superstores between the 19th and 24th of December. Um, They've been pretty vocal in terms of uh, trying to get their uh, customer base not to hoard pre-Brexit and encouraging their customers only to buy what they need and not not to stockpile. They always think that's quite a challenging message to have because as soon as you say to people, whatever you do, don't stockpile, then it's in your psyche. And even my mother's filling a cupboard up with soup as we pretty much as we speak when uh, normally she's just living uh, week by week. So Roger Burnley's um, talking about... Um, this and, and it's come out saying they already have marshals in store uh, but what they're wanting to do is to make sure consumers feel safe at, at peak shopping periods as well as the extra staff they've got a, um, a queuing app and we've spoken about different queuing apps uh, on the show before and they're using Qdini which is basically an app that allows you to stay in your car if there's a queue out the front of the store and then as soon as uh, that the, your uh, turn is up you can jump out your car and, and, and pop into the shop they're also which I think it's really interesting and I haven't seen it from any other retailer coating some surfaces in store um, with a a special antimicrobial uh, film um, where the virus could be harbored and that includes fridges freezers and the checkout as well as trolleys and baskets Um, and as part of a project I've been working on I've been around all of the retailers over the last couple of weeks and it's interesting to see as to have uh, little signs in the bottom of the trolleys now saying about this antimicrobial coating on the um, on the trolleys which I'm interested to think you know will safety become a driver of store choice for us you know if there's more staff and marshals and these um i guess not only perspex screens which we really used to now but antimicrobial items too we think oh we feel safer when we uh, haven't yet been vaccinated um they're also talking about trying to ease congestion and uh, another big thing I guess for Asda that's been covered in the last week or so and it's been interesting to see if other retailers will follow suit is the fact that they're going to be closed on Boxing Day uh, and pay their staff um, even though the, the store is, co- is closed in order to reward them for such a challenging period they've been through. Uh, the BRC in the same article is talking about contingency planning and, and being prepared for various scenarios as we've already alluded to because of Brexit and then um, there's been a, um, a public statement from Tesco chair John Allen, who's also been talking about stockpiling some fresh, um, sorry, non-fresh ambient products uh, as they uh, look towards Brexit, which which does make you feel if you're a, a big owner of warehouse or cold storage at this stage in the game, you're going to be doing all right on your, your uh, uh, cost per pallet. What, what uh, do you think, John? Do you think some of these measures, you know, extra staff, different technologies, be it queuing apps, be it microbial films on the fridge doors. What do you think that will help us, 
I guess, get back into store more because over 80% of us are still shopping in store for food, not online. Um, is it likely to switch or will it just retain loyalty? What do you reckon? Well, it's not going to do any harm, is it, really? Um, I think uh, I think it's really interesting what, what ASDA are doing. I mean, they're you know, clearly taking the issue very, very seriously and demonstrably so and telling people what they're doing. They've been very open. They've been very transparent, I think. You know, trying to discourage people from, it's interesting you know, trying to discourage people from stockpiling at christmas usually we all go out and spend loads of money on food and drink we don't need so it's the one time of year that it, almost intuitively we do this i mean again from personal experience i went into our garage the other day and i was actually you know we, we can open a supermarket in our garage i reckon <laughs> basically um we've got you know we, we we got more food and drink than we know what to do with probably i suspect but but yeah yes yeah, so again again it's a sort of combination of the covid and the brexit isn't it the uncertainty that, that, that we did see in 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 the early days of covid that people did stockpile they went out and bought soup and pasta and toilet rolls and you know in volumes that they could not possibly need basically so i think trying to encourage people to shop sensibly and safely is a really good idea i think the queuing app I think is great, really. Um, I think the thing that sort of struck me most about this story is the fact they're going to shut on Boxing Day and they're going to pay their staff because, um, you know, people talk about farmers and food companies working really hard through COVID. People in supermarkets have had to, and they've been exposed to, you know, hundreds and thousands of people at times, haven't they, really? So, uh, and again, they've remained at largely open. Um, they've, you know, after that stuttering start, they've managed to keep us, um, you know, with the, the virtually the full range of food and drink products that you could want. And I think, I think not, I think for all sorts of reasons, not opening on Boxing Day is a really good thing. Um, and I think paying the staff is even better, basically. I think, you know, as the, I'd sort of take my hat off to them that. It'd be interesting to see whether other people follow suit. Um, personally, I've never understood why people need to go shopping on Boxing Day, but hey, that's just me. And Laura, what you were saying there about uh, safety um, becoming potentially a, a driver of store choice um, and, and retailer choice, that really resonated with me. I mean, we went uh, shopping to a supermarket, shall go unnamed, um, here locally um, at the weekend, and it was awful. It was awful. And I'm not someone who's sort of massively worried about my own personal health um, in a COVID context, but I felt very uncomfortable. It was so poorly managed. And I think part of the problem was that they had clearly decided they weren't going to limit the number of shoppers in store. But if you get above a certain number, there's just no, none of the systems you have, none of the precautions you have are going to matter because you're not going to enforce any social distancing, especially if your own staff are sort of replenishing um, aisles at the same time and shelves at the same time and getting in, in, in the way. But yeah, it was, it was heaving. Everyone was on top of each other. Um, lots of people weren't wearing masks. Um, and yeah, it was incredibly poorly managed. And I, after that experience, which really made me feel unsafe and uncomfortable being in that store, I would be very attracted to um, a, a retailer, a store that goes out of their way to um, to avoid something like that. And in particular, I think I'll be paying closer attention to who is actually limiting the number of shoppers in store. Because, yeah, based on that personal experience, I think that is what it comes down to. You need to keep those numbers low. Otherwise, none of the other stuff is going to matter. John, what's your second pick for us? Uh, thanks, Julia. My, my second pick was, um, again, so I've done a lot of work in the horticultural 
sector over the years, amongst many other things that I've got involved with at Promar. But uh, and I've done a lot of work in Chile, which is a great place to visit and work. And uh, uh, and I've done quite a lot of work looking at the export development of fruit and wine and salmon from from Chile. So I picked a story from it was from fruitnet.com. Uh, which is an online site for the international fresh produce sector. And it was saying that uh, Ch Chile's uh, cherry industry is one of the great success stories. And it was talking about the fact that they, uh, um, uh, they've become very dependent on China over the last uh, uh, three or four years in particular. Probably 90% of their uh, cherry exports, it's a bit of a tongue twister, Chilean cherry exports to China. Uh, about 90% of their crop goes to China, basically. And they've been going absolutely great guns in China over the last few years, but they they were one of the first victims of the COVID um, uh, pandemic, sort of in, in sort of January, February uh, last year. And they had to find other markets very quickly. They were able to land some of their fruit, but they basically announced that they're going to sort of, uh, they're not going to be distracted. Um, they're going to carry on supplying the ch uh, Chinese market, but also they're having... Uh, other export programs in places like Thailand and Vietnam, Indonesia and Malaysia. So sort of trying to perhaps diversify their dependence on, on markets. And that's a, almost a recurring theme, isn't it? You know, we saw the Irish saying we need to uh, diversify away from the UK. The, the, the Chileans are saying, we, you know, they love the Chinese market. It's been fantastic for them, but they need they recognize the need to diversify markets and also put quite substantial promotional funding behind it. And a lot of that promotional funding it goes into sort of you know, perhaps rather conventional point of sale activity, um, but they also spend a lot of money on online advertising, and that's been the real growth. That's been where the real growth of their sales in China has come from. Uh, their, their seasonal supply coincides with the uh, Chinese New Year, and uh, uh, red is good luck in China. And so it, you know, nice big red. Chilean cherries going into China. They've got the market for themselves almost at that time of the year. But that even even though they enjoy that benefit, they still pump a lot of money into promotion, and they really get behind their products. And there's all, there's a number of reasons why their exports to China have increased significantly. But the provision of consistent promotional funding um, of 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 a good size, a good scale. They're not cutting corners and putting it into the routes to market that are growing or supporting the routes to market growing and then finding resource to, to look at other markets as well in Southeast Asia. To me, we could learn an awful lot in this country about how the Chileans go about doing this sort of thing. There's loads of transferable lessons. I was That was the thing that struck out to me, John, about the article was the fact that they are using so much marketing where normally you'd think if you've got a bit of a monopoly on the market you've got an oversupply and you know you could easily become a commodity you could just it could be the supply and demand metrics and, and, let, and let it flow whereas it was enjoy the red moment that was mentioned in the article that I really liked and, and using that to I guess keep consumers locked in even when there is an oversupply it was quite refreshing because the food industry isn't always good at that and we're always good at a race to the bottom not always great at differentiating our offer. Yeah, I think the Chileans have decided, um, I mean, again, you know, like all organisations, the Chilean Fruit Export, Export Association, at some point, there is a limit to their resources, basically. But they've decided that China is you know, a real big priority, not just for not just for cherries, but for blueberries and grapes. And, you know, and, they, and they're very good at negotiating access. They, they, the, the people we work there have sometimes sort of said, you know, slightly tongue in cheek, hey, John, if you want someone to come and help you in through Brexit and negotiating trade deals, we know how to do this in Santiago. 
they, they've negotiated something like 60 or 70 trade deals around the world in the last 10 years. But there's someone in Santiago knows how to do this and do it well and do it quickly and get what they want out of it. Um, but negotiating market access is one thing. And when they got market access, they, 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 they push hard and they're prepared to put their money where they're literally where their mouth is and, and support yeah. the product, even even in this sort of slightly situation where there's no there's no other for that limited yeah. time period. There's no other real competition to them. Having said that, they know because that's the case, they know that people in New Zealand and Australia and one or two other places will say, well, hey, we can have a bit of that market. You know, the, 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 no, no one's, I think they recognise that although they've got this market advantage at the moment, no, that, that won't stay the same forever. Other people will see what they're doing and they'll, they'll, they'll fancy a bit of this market. And so they're trying to put clear water between, I think they're trying to put clear water between themselves and the competition before the, the competition start to nibbling away their market. Uh, but I think the other thing is also the, the recognition that, you know, you can't just live by China alone. It, China is very tantalizing and can be anything to everybody. But I think I think they've recognized in China, in Chile rather, that they are being totally dependent on China. That, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a good side to that, but there's also a downside and they want to mitigate against that. Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from Modern Retail, and it's titled Inside Walmart's Growing Army of Employee TikTokers. Um, Again, this continues a theme that we touched on recently on the show quite a bit, the growing use of social media platforms such as TikTok by food companies and retailers. And this article takes a particularly interesting angle. It looks at companies, primarily Walmart in this case, but others as well, cultivating a different breed of influencer, their own employees. So at Walmart, there's an internal influencer program called Spotlight, which was created this autumn and currently has about 500 employees involved in it. And the idea is to turn these employees into small-scale influencers that are advocating on behalf of Walmart and promoting Walmart products and services. Um, Some will do this on Instagram. Many are doing it on TikTok. Um, The article uh, points out that TikTok is sort of fast becoming a hub for Walmart and its employees, with lots of workers sharing content of themselves at work, taking part in Walmart dance parties and similar. And the idea is that Walmart plans to increase this spotlight program, which, as I said, currently has about 500 people enrolled in it, to 1.5 million across the U.S., Now, I should say Walmart didn't comment for this article specifically, but one of the companies it does work with on these programs told the journalist that the vision is to grow this into the world's largest employee influencer program. And I think the scale of that ambition is fascinating. And Walmart isn't the only retailer to look at its employees as potential influencers. Um, The article points out that Dunkin' Donuts um, is compensating some employees to post TikToks on the job. And Amazon has warehouse workers that are paid to tweet corporate talking points about life inside Amazon fulfillment centers. And all of this raises lots of really interesting and quite challenging questions. First of all, around efficacy. I mean, is there really much appetite for this type of content, especially when it has been obviously orchestrated and there are specific talking points that are being pushed on social media? Those Amazon fulfillment center workers, when they first uh, started with uh, with those tweets, there was quite a bit of pushback because it was reasonably obvious that this was sort of orchestrated uh, centrally. Um, 
Obviously, we always hear about social media being about authenticity and spontaneity and playfulness and experimentation. And I, I guess also the sort of scope to occasionally get things wrong. And it's hard, I think, to square that kind of ethos with corporate sign-off processes and communications policies. Um, the article also points out there's sort of potential issues around disclosure of commercial relationships. So particularly if employees are posting from their personal accounts, how obvious is it to followers that are just stumbling um, across various content on social media that there is that, um, that relationship to um, a, a corporate entity? And there's also this really fine line between, I suppose, incentivizing employees to post nice things about their employer and to be active on social media, um, if that is something they enjoy and they have an affinity towards. But once this becomes an expectation, that becomes a little bit trickier. Um, is there a risk that at some point career progression is tied to how you present yourself on these channels, how you t talk about your employer on your, on your social media chan channels? They do quote some employees um, in the article who say that being active on social has really helped their careers, which is great. Um, but I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that, um, th that this might turn into an expectation. And also particularly because we do have this growing conversation about the mental health implications of constant social media use. So I think there's a responsibility for employers as well to not incentivize employees or put pressure on them potentially inadvertently um, to, to constantly be on these channels and not to just consume content, but to be producing promotional content as well. John, what did you make of it? Well, I thought it was a really interesting article, Julia, and I, I, I read it several times, actually, because I had to sort of sometimes do a bit of a second take, really. I think it's, it's really interesting that sort of for, for retailers and, and brands, you know, they, they've often looked for customers to be the, the advocate, haven't they? Or we've put a well-known person, you know, Gary Lineker eating crisps, you know, that will get people buying them type thing. This shows that there's a th sort of sense of thinking that the advocate is right in front of you, and it's the people you're actually employing, and they're they're probably right that strong, some of the strongest advocates for for any business is the sort of the the nature and the quality and the the caliber of people they uh, employ and how they interact with the social, the, the the outside world, and as you say, sort of these days using social media um, is is very much part part of that. I thought it was interesting that, you know, I think each of the individual stores that were doing this have got their own Facebook page and there, there is no, well, I wasn't quite sure whether sort of Walmart were trying to control what they post, but they said basically there's so much being posted, Walmart can't keep track of it all, basically, which shows that they've, um, yeah, they've probably sort of taken that stance. And as long as it's sort of largely positive stuff being promoted, they're probably very, very welcome of it. I think I think that the point about encouraging um, employees to be active on social media, look, at, at Promar we're included, we're, we're encouraged to be active on social media to a certain extent. There's some, we, there are some things that we are not allowed to tweet about um, or, or you know, strongly discouraged, shall we say, not to tweet about, but there's other things that we're very much encouraged to tweet about, but we're not set limits on, you know, John, you must be, you know, five tweets a day or whatever. I, I sort of tend to do it when I think I've got something that might be interesting to say, basically. 
And uh, I agree with you, John. It, Julie, it was a fantastic article and it made me think about some of the conversations we've had in the past about community building and making people feel part of something. Uh, and I suppose it isn't that long ago if you would rock up to work and you'd be encouraged not to have your phone with you and whatever you do, don't be looking at social media. And now employers are saying, whatever you do, make sure you're tweeting or putting this on TikTok. So it's a, I guess it's maybe a generational thing, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, one thing that really triggered in my mind is for some of the manufacturing base into the likes of Walmart and others that are quite faceless and do struggle to, I suppose, have... Um, a decent talent talent pipeline and show that they even exist. And these can be huge FMCG companies that maybe produce a lot of own brand products. Isn't this a great opportunity to have advocates in their organisations that are comfortable to do this, to show the different roles and uh, opportunities that exist in business? Having that human face will help, um, I guess, role model the opportunities that exist and show that organizations are transparent and good to work for so yeah. i i think a, a big player like walmart will give some of the others confidence to to give it a go nora what's your second pick for us my second pick this week is from charged and it's one-stop partners with delivery offering delivery from 200 stores and this is news that the latest retailer uh, to partner with delivery is one stop and as we know one stop is a subsidiary of tesco it's been a subsidiary of tesco for over 15 years um, and it's now announced that over 400 lines uh, can be delivered from a selection of it said 200 stores in as little as 20 minutes um, and I was really uh, intrigued by this article because there's 16 major UK retailers now partnering with Deliveroo, the likes of Aldi, Co-op uh, and others that we've we've sometimes mentioned on this show. Um, and I, I'm really intrigued that some of these that are partnering with um, Deliveroo already have a delivery channel of their own. Uh, and this is an extra string to the bow. This is the whole omni-channel option that let's use Deliveroo too. Some of them uh, I guess Aldi and, and One Stop directly don't uh, and, and, and looking to, to, to get more involved with them. And I guess one thing I wanted to sort of chat about really was, do we think if you're getting something from Deliveroo, that's quite a, um, via a One Stop, that's maybe a, a smaller value purchase. It's maybe, I don't know, a bottle of booze or it's a meal for this evening. It's not, def I wouldn't have thought it's your weekly shop. And are we moving now to more consumers, and maybe, again, it's a generational thing, that are just wanting that instant, right, rather than filling my fridge for the week, I want this now in the next 20 minutes. And, and I guess one of the other reasons I mentioned that, I was uh, at, at Greg's uh, last week, I, I don't mention Greg's a lot, I mention it almost every week, uh, buying my uh, weekly uh, gingerbread man. And I was chatting to one of the staff in there and she, I was saying, how busy have you been? And she said, super busy. And one of the things that are keeping them so busy is just eat and home deliveries. And, I, and that really surprised surprised me that the growth in people buying I said you know what are they buying she don't want a sausage roll and a, and a cup of coffee going out on just eat and I'm thinking are people now because I would have thought you know higher value purchases online but getting used to smaller smaller value items and then one thing um the, I've got a, a one-stop around the corner from me, and it's been really interesting how they've uh, invested in their store, particularly over the last couple of months. There's now a, a big Costa um, coffee machine in there. There's a big Tango Blast machine for and a slush puppy machine. So, and there's a little food to go area. So they're pivoting just from 
loaf of bread and a bottle of booze through to food to go and something round the corner that, that, that you want something from and you don't necessarily need to walk for it because you can click on your delivery app. What do you think, John? Because it's it seems a another, as I say, another horse in the stable for delivery. Yeah, look, I think it, it, it's very interesting. I, I hadn't personally realised that they're already linked up with 16 major retailers already, so it looks like nobody nobody wants to be left out of this, don't they? And I think, it's, as you say, it's just... Uh, sometimes when we talk, talk to farmers and to food companies and, and you know, they can sort of unburden themselves with the challenges they're facing. I think one of the things I've often said is that, that, you know, the good news is there are more ways of getting food to consumers in the UK than ever before, uh, whether it's through a conventional supermarket or in normal times a restaurant or the food service outlets, but all this online shopping, um, you know, you can get food at a, a, a railway station, an airport, a, uh, football ground it doesn't matter where you go you can buy food in this country almost 24 hours a day seven days a week basically i think it's a, another manifestation of this i think the fact you can order it in 20 minutes that's really that that's fascinating um so you can literally you don't have to make your mind up anymore about what you want to eat you can just make you can just decide that uh, you know sort of in, in in the time we've been doing this we could have ordered three meals each the other thing i suppose laura was that there's only 400 products involved isn't there so you haven't got quite fantastically wide choice of products you could get from maybe HelloFresh, for example. I don't know. I'll have to try it out and see. Yeah, I know. And I haven't had a chance to look and see what those 400 products are. But if I think about my store around the corner, it's as most one stops are, it's relatively small. uh, And, you know, the the couple of staff that are in there, they're always kept busy because you can take your parcels back. You can pay for your coffee. They're taking normally groceries and lottery tickets through the till and all the rest of it. And if they've also added to their workload, they've got something pinging away saying, you know, that you've now got a a delivery order that needs collecting collating and someone's coming for it in 15 minutes that extra pressure on individuals in store if they're not going to um resource it even more which is obviously comes with a cost could could be super challenging what yeah. do you think julia i also think the challenge is also around differentiation i think this year there has been so much pressure to have an online option and some delivery option available for customers and i think having these partnerships with uh, third party services like like delivery um or just eat or uber eats i think that's been a fantastic way for retailers to get a solution a home delivery solution out there as quickly as possible um I suppose it's very challenging to drive differentiation, though, because your customer's primary relationship is most likely going to be with that delivery platform. Is some if if what you're offering is a relatively generic range of convenience grocery items, is anyone really going to remember that those came from you, or are we going to see growing pressure um, for for retailers to really try and differentiate? I get it on Greg's, you know, Greg's, that's a very specific range of products. People have huge brand loyalty. Um, I, I understand that someone might say, I'm going to specifically seek out these products. Whereas with some of the sort of more generic branded offerings that you could just be buying anywhere, um, is that customer relationship basically drifting over to a third party? And as a retailer, you're actually losing um, your your relationship with with those customers. So, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in twenty twenty one, and whether retailers are going to try and maybe reel back some of those partnerships a little bit to try and uh, build those relationships up themselves again. John, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Hey, well, look, thank you for ask, asking me to, to join in the fun. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.